This is Shame in the Pandemic. I'm Paul McNally. So it's 27th of March. Boris Johnson's in self-isolation. This is Dr. Arthur Rose, a research fellow in medical humanities at the University of Exeter. He's tested positive for COVID. Rumours are starting to circulate that he's seriously ill, but the official message from number 10 is still that his symptoms are mild. What follows is a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is tonight in intensive care. This is a report from the BBC. At St Thomas's Hospital in London, suffering from the effects of coronavirus. Mr Johnson was admitted last night, but his office says his condition worsened during the course of this afternoon. And on the advice of his medical team, he was moved to the intensive care unit. We don't know where exactly he contracted it, but a couple of weeks before that, he, he had been going around a hospital that had COVID cases, shaking hands with, and I quote, everyone, as he put it. Professor Luna Dolezal is an associate professor in philosophy and medical humanities at the University of Exeter. She's sitting here with Arthur in the podcasting studio with me, and we're talking about Boris Johnson in the first half of 2020 and his battle with COVID-19. Things apparently quickly deteriorated, um, but it was really hard from the outside to know exactly what was going on. Shortly after eight o'clock, an official statement from Downing Street. It's said to be as a precaution. The Prime Minister is said to be conscious. But Boris Johnson tonight, just across the Thames, is in intensive care. Anyway, he spent, I think it was seven days in hospital, was released and didn't have to have mechanical respiration or go on a, a ventilator. Here is a video statement that Johnson gave when he emerged from hospital. Good afternoon. I've today left hospital after a week in which the NHS has saved my life. No question. It's hard to find words to express my debt. But before I come to that, I want to thank everyone in the entire UK. When Boris Johnson was better and he spoke publicly about his experience of contracting COVID and being ill, he talked very publicly about how he thought one of the reasons that he got so unwell was because he was overweight. I've always wanted to lose weight for ages and ages. And I, like I think many people, I struggle with my weight, go up and, and down. But since I, I recovered from coronavirus, I've been steadily building up my fitness. This is from a video released by Downing Street, which shows Johnson outside in a garden of sorts, a dog on a lead, and uplifting music in the background. I, I don't want to make any any uh, excessive claims because I've only really just started concentrating on. But I've got. I, I'm at least a stone down. I'm more than a stone down. He said himself that he was too fat, and this excess weight was one of the reasons that kind of raised his risk to um, being seriously ill with COVID. And off the back of this experience. Um, and certainly it was explicitly tied to this experience of Boris Johnson's own illness and his own his own weight, I suppose. The government devised and launched a public health campaign called Tackling Obesity. What we're doing now with our better health strategies, just trying to help people a little bit to, to 
bring their, their weight down. Not in a excessively bossy or, or nannying way, I hope. We want this one really to be sympathetic to people, to understand the difficulties that people face uh, with, the, with their weight, the struggles that everybody faces or many, many people face. This campaign, launched in August 2020, was explicitly linked to Johnson's own experience, but also the research that was coming out that said being overweight raised the possibility of serious illness and death from COVID-19. And the campaign involved trying to motivate people to lose weight, with things like calorie counts on menus, not advertising certain foods at certain times, and they came up with this catchphrase, simple swaps, that was meant to encourage you to have a piece of fruit rather than a chocolate bar. This campaign, it turns out, was ineffective. So the evidence gathered after was that it, it really made no difference. And um, one of the problems with the campaign was that it, was, it used implicit and explicit shaming as the kind of motivation for the campaign. The government was essentially shaming the entire country. In the policy documents and the press release for the campaign, spoke very explicitly about the burden that people with excess weight were on the NHS, spoke really explicitly about the costs of being overweight and made this idea of simple swaps or these small changes or small choices that you could make around exercise and, and food, you know, uncoupled those from the complex socioeconomic contingencies that people live their lives in. So some people don't live near green spaces or some people work three jobs and have children so they don't have time to prepare healthy meals or can't afford the ingredients or live in food deserts where they don't have access to certain types of food or, you know, or so live in socially deprived areas and so on. So there's the, the campaign presupposed a kind of agency and freedom of choice that many people in the UK just don't have. This was also launched at the same time in August 2020 as the Eat Out to Help Out campaign. This was meant to revitalize the hospitality industry. You got 50% off your meal up to 10 pounds. So most mainstream restaurants like McDonald's and KFC were offering this deal. So there was a lot of incentive to eat out and eat out, eating out, you know, more often than not means that you're eating food that's kind of denser in calorie count generally less healthy than the food you might prepare at home. Um, so there was this kind of mixed message at the same time as the Tackling Obesity campaign was launched, making simple swaps. You know, there were people were being encouraged um, by the same kind of messaging body in the government to eat out to help out. There's a huge amount of public health evidence that says this behaviour change approach is ineffective. What really needs to be tackled are the societal and structural issues. Number 10 released this social media video. It's like Boris walking his dog in the park and kind of reflecting on his illness and how much better he feels now that he's doing his morning jogs and he's less lost all these kilos. Um, and, you know, and we should all do our part and help protect the NHS by losing a bit of weight. Like these are the explicit, it's what he says in the video, it's explicit. The Tackling Obesity campaign is an example of how shaming was mobilized during the pandemic. This messaging set up a target population to blame for anything that was poorly handled with regards to COVID-19. Absolutely explicit in the, in the policy document that people living with obesity or who, have, who are overweight 
are costing the NHS a certain amount of money, are putting pressure on the NHS, are putting strain on healthcare workers. You know, so it's, you know, and if you are a person who is overweight or lives with obesity, then that's you. That's you who's costing others. That's you who's to blame for the NHS falling apart during COVID. You know, so it's um it's very dangerous kind of rationale, blame, this blaming in public health. It's important to say that fat shaming did exist before Boris's Britain, if you want to call it that. This is Dr. Tanisha Spratt, a lecturer in sociology at the University of Greenwich. So with the onset of neoliberalism under the Thatcher government in the 1980s, there was this kind of um, renewed interest in thinking about what it means to be responsible for yourself and what it means to be to hold society responsible for individual actions. So... I mean, you probably remember at the time Thatcher had her kind of no such thing as society speech uh, that was widely criticised. Here's a clip of Margaret Thatcher at the podium of the 1975 Conservative Conference. We believe there should be individuals. We're all unequal. No one, thank heavens, is quite like anyone else, however much the socialists may pretend otherwise. And we believe that everyone has the right to be unequal. But to us, every human being is equally important. Boris Johnson has taken a similar approach when it comes to his attitude towards COVID-19. I suppose the larger question within that is, is it moral or ethical for individual people to be given that kind of responsibility when persistent inequalities means that different people have access to different things? Or should the government be taking greater responsibility when it comes to promoting good health uh, and reducing things like rising obesity rates? So a lot of people do think that this is an individual issue, which is why Boris Johnson's emphasis on practicing individual responsibility through individual weight management has largely gone unchallenged. This, of course, is all relative. So who we consider fat in inverted commas and how we think about fatness is is in this way contextually specific uh, and there have been studies that have looked at how body ideals within different communities have been thought about differently so uh, for example there's been work that's that's looked at how african-american communities um, and how they think about kind of body ideals might differ significantly from white american communities so there seems to be this kind of tension between a medical understanding of excess weight, in inverted commas, where the focus is on categorizing excess weight in terms of BMI, uh, which is a, a medical term that kind of distinguishes between being of a healthy weight and being inverted commas, but you can't see, uh, being of a healthy weight, um, a uh, being overweight, being obese and being severely obese and, and how that's kind of thought about numerically in terms of height and, and weight. So there's that kind of understanding versus I would say, a, a social understanding of, of what it means to live in a larger body, which kind of thinks about a recognition of body weight in terms of appearance. So thinking about recognizing or visually understanding people to be overweight, and, and that can differ significantly according to 
where that person is um, and the time that they're living in. I mean, people talk about Marilyn Monroe as being kind of big at the time, but now we would probably largely see her as being relatively normative in, in her body size. Um, so that's that's an example that just shows that we we kind of shift in the way that we think about excess weight, in inverted commas, um, depending on the kind of time and location that we're living in. And it's important to talk about as well the way that these lines are often blurred. So there's this contention between a social understanding and a medical understanding of excess weight. And so when there are conversations with GPs or in medical settings about excess weight, there's a failure to recognize that it has this social significance that isn't rooted in the health orientation that they are perhaps coming from. When it comes to kind of thinking about weight without engaging with with this kind of medical aspect, there's this recognition of judgment that can come from looking at a person who's living in a larger body and making assumptions about them and their lifestyle and their behavior based on that. Good health naturally means different things to different people. Some people think exclusively about physical health when they're talking about good health. Other people think about mental health. Some other people think of it as a balance between mental and physical health because they recognize that these two things are are interdependent. Um, Some people with chronic illnesses might think of themselves as being in good health, whilst others might always view them as being unwell because of their chronic condition. So if you're living with with a chronic condition and you're kind of dealing with symptoms day to day, it might be that other people recognize you as unwell, whereas you might feel like you're actually having a good day because your symptoms aren't that bad that day. Um, And it's interesting when thinking about conditions like HIV, which are often, I mean, putting aside the kind of stigmatization that still exists around uh, conditions like HIV, it also is recognized as a disability status on a number of forms in the US, whereas people living with HIV might not think of themselves as as living with a disability and they might not think of themselves as necessarily ill. so also some people might look healthy and they in, in inverted commas and they might feel healthy and have an under, un, unknown underlying condition that renders them clinically unhealthy in inverted commas. Um, it could be that we're walking around and we're experiencing different health issues without realizing it and we're visually presenting in a way that doesn't allow other people to see it. So in that way, you could argue that we're kind of passing as healthy when we're actually not. Um, if you're if you're taking this kind of approach where if you have any kind of ailment then you are automatically unhealthy Um, and also going back to what I said before there are sometimes differences in clinical versus social understandings of good health Um, so when thinking about chronic conditions this is a a good example because clinically you probably be understood as as not having good health but socially your condition might not be seen to other people you might not be experiencing particularly bad symptoms that day. So you might think of yourself as being in in good health. Um, And when we're thinking about obesity as a risk factor for disease and interventions that we might use to reduce that risk, it's important to consider the individual's mental health as well as their physical health, which is something that's often not done in medical practice. So thinking about things like will strict dieting and calorie counting benefit that person's physical health to the detriment of their mental health? Will it positively affect both by improving physical health, boosting self-esteem that will improve their mental health? These are important questions to consider. Um, that I think we often don't when we think about good health in this kind of binary, objective way.
So we are moving away from obesity now, this powerful, violent feeling of shame, and towards talking about the process of shaming someone else. Here's Luna again. Shaming is a really interesting phenomena and something that we're increasingly familiar with because of social media. Like online shaming is something that probably everyone is familiar with or has heard about or has witnessed or taken part in or been the brunt of. When when we talk about shame being used as a political tool, one way that happens is through explicit shaming. So an individual or a group of individuals are shamed for some transgression or some behavior for some reason. And what's interesting about shaming is that it may or may not result in someone feeling shame. Uh, you might just not agree with what you're being shamed for. You might have the social power to resist that shaming. Vulnerability to shame is very dependent on where you are in the social hierarchy. So people who are more socially powerful, who are more privileged, who hold a lot of social power, maybe have work in positions of authority, come from privileged backgrounds, are less likely to be kind of hurt by shame than those who are lower down the social hierarchy who might already be marginalized or disadvantaged in some way. And I think it's really useful to understand shame as a personal emotional experience, but also as expressions and experiences of social and political power. So shame is always connected to something more than what you've done wrong, because the, the way we know what's right or wrong is through social and political norms, which are contingent and determined by those who have power. At this point, Luna gives a real world example. In the first lockdown, there was a kind of weekly ritual that was set up by a Dutch citizen who lives in the UK, Anne-Marie Plas, called Clap for Care. So every Thursday night, everyone would go out onto their doorstep and clap for the NHS and then for all key workers and carers. It was called Clap for Carers. And it was a, a kind of a way for the public who were locked down at home to show their appreciation for those who are working at considerable risk to their health um, at the time. And But it was also a kind of morale-boosting, community-building event. We did it a few times. We'd go on your doorstep, your neighbours are out, and it's a kind of a rush of finally seeing people and doing something communally when everyone was so individualized and locked down at home. And during April in 2020, there was a mum who wrote a, a post on Mumsnet, which is a well-known site for parents, <laughs> and where she wrote about missing the Thursday night clap one evening because her son had been up all night and she had to go she ended up falling asleep and and basically didn't make it onto her doorstep to clap for the carers and then on her community Facebook group was named and shamed by someone from the street saying so and so couldn't even be bothered going getting out and showing her appreciation I hope when she gets sick that you know that no, people don't look after her anyway she was basically named and shamed by her neighbor for not coming out onto the doorstep without this neighbor finding out the circumstances which meant that she couldn't go out and then there were reports this wasn't certainly wasn't an isolated f incident there are reports in the news of key workers and care workers and nhs workers being shamed by their neighbors for not being on the stoop on thursday nights to clap because they were sleeping or working um, but their neighbours didn't realise that they might have been a doctor, a nurse or 
care worker or whatever. And so it's really interesting to think about why were people doing this? But I think part of why they're doing it is to, first of all, demonstrate their values. So and doing and a way to do that is to by, by pointing out who doesn't hold your values. So I, I'm a good person because I clap. They're bad people because they don't clap. So there's an in and out who's in the in group and who's in the out group, us and them kind of mentality that that plays part. Um, and then what happens with social media is that these kinds of incidents can get really amplified really quickly. So you post that on Twitter or on Facebook and then people start sharing or liking that post. And this tiny little transgression that happened in your community on your street can like suddenly explode to be a global thing that people all over the world know that you did this thing and it becomes completely disproportionate to the incident the kind of audience for your transgression or your so-called transgression I mean obviously in this case we could say this woman didn't do anything wrong and and in in fact in this case there was a shame backlash so what happened was the person who posted the post became the recipient of shame and that shows how volatile and unpredictable shame can be, especially online, where you think you're doing the right thing by shaming someone or calling out, you know, this kind of calling them out for something that they've done wrong. Then that kind of backfires on you and then you get called out for calling them out. Most people, when thinking about COVID-19 in relation to shame, commonly connect that to stigma. Here's Arthur again to elaborate. You know, in its historical senses about marking certain people as being unworthy or less worthy than others. And in its mod modern sense is largely to do with um, groups who are sort of marginalized. Historically, stigmas were inflicted on bodies, like people were branded or their hands were cut off if they were caught stealing, so that it would be immediately apparent to others in the community that this person was damaged, or um, dangerous or somehow socially inferior, they should be rejected or outcast. And, um, and so stigmas were historically like inflicted on the body or like people were marked in different ways. You, were, you wore the scarlet letter if you were a prostitute or the yellow star if you're a Jew. And, you're in the, and those physical brands or marks or signs made it like apparent straight away that you belong to that inferior group. Nowadays, stigmas are inflicted more silently and invisibly through social and political norms about what is acceptable or unacceptable, normal or abnormal, appropriate or inappropriate. So stigma itself is not something that you experience directly because it's a mark or a category. It's a category term. You're stigmatized. You don't experience stigma. What you experience is all the related social phenomena. So you've experienced discrimination or marginalization or unfair treatment or labeling or stereotyping. And how individuals experience stigma is commonly thought to be through shame or experiences like shame, where you have a sense of being judged by a dominant social group and marked as inferior, lacking in some way, deficient or defiled. So shame and stigma are related, definitely, and often those terms are used interchangeably. Um, but what's so, and, and it's, I think, fair to say that most stigma is related to shame or has shame 
somehow as a component of the experience related to the stigma. But it's certainly not the case that all shame is related to stigma. So there's plenty of experiences of shame that aren't related to stigma. So the mum's net example that we spoke about earlier, um, here's someone who's like publicly shamed, named and shamed for a supposed transgression within a particular community. But there's nothing about that experience that is related to her being stigmatized in any way or related to pre-existing stigma. And so there's a lot of shame and shaming that circulates that isn't attached to stigma. And I think not just using a, a stigma as a category to talk about unfair treatment and discrimination and marginalization misses out on a whole range of other experiences that are captured through a shame lens. And that's one of the reasons why we have been looking at the pandemic through a shame lens rather than a stigma lens. Um, because certainly there's a lot of things we could pull out of the pandemic in terms of people's experiences through the lens of stigma, but that would miss all of this other social phenomena that has been going on and been really dominant and prevalent um, through shame and shaming. Let's hear from Tanisha again on the topic of stigma. So in an article with uh, Professor Luna Dolezal at the University of Exeter and I have recently written, we talk about Graham Scambler um, and how he discusses what he labels, quote, attributions of shame and blame. And he talks about them as central to the successful maintenance of a social order where the reproduction of the status quo, along with its norms, practices and ideologies, depends on, quote, rooting out the misfits and all their heterogeneity and the variety and severity of the threats they represent. So he argues that those who are stigmatized infringe against the norms of shame and reveal that they have an ontological deficit. Um, in other words, they show that there's something deficient that's at the core of their being, but those who are simply deviant or that don't comply with the dominant norms and rules of society can infringe the norms of blame. And these individuals have a moral deficit where they're seen as irresponsible and willfully non-compliant. So essentially, those who are stigmatized are believed to have something deficient at, at the core of their being. And those who are deviant are believed to have a moral deficit that comes from willful non-compliance. Um, so when thinking about things like obesity, I mean, depending on who you're asking, you could you could say that, that they're both stigmatized and viewed as deviant um, because that kind of thing that's driving their obesity is, is often seen to be understood as something that's wrong with them. So at the core of their being, um, and also the result of, of a choice driven response to the, the environment that they're, they're living in that promotes things like un unhealthy food, um, which you could argue, or some people would argue would represent this kind of more moral deficit that comes from willful non-compliance, um, especially when the government is saying this is what you need to do and you're, you're not doing what's being told. You've been listening to Shame and the Pandemic. I'd like to give a huge thanks to the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, the Wellcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health, University of Exeter, Alice Watterson, the Drama Department's podcast studio, and all our contributors. This podcast has been produced by Volume. I'm Paul McNally. See you next time. Volume.